The reading this morning is from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me, and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. These are the words of the Lord. Um, We're in the middle of a three-part series called If I Were God, I Would, dot, dot, dot. Last week, we looked at If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. Uh, You can get that that talk if you want to listen to it on our podcasts and on our website. And today, we're looking at the subject, If I Were God, I'd Accept All the Good People. And I don't know if this is a question that you have asked yourself before, or perhaps you've been asked the question, why do you have to go to church and be a Christian and all of those things accept Jesus and all of that stuff in order to be acceptable to God, won't he just accept you if you're good, if you're a moral person, if you're an upright person, if you're a good husband or wife or citizen or father or employee or boss? Isn't that enough? Uh, Why do we have to go through Jesus? And uh, why does he have to die for us uh, as the Christians teach? And so that's really the theme of my subject this morning, and I'd like us to give our minds to that just for a few moments before coffee. In 2008 and 2009, uh, Fox Television Network aired a radical new game show uh, called The Moment of Truth. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I don't think it aired in South Africa. um, And in fact, it had to be scrapped because of the trouble that it was causing. Contestants answer a series of 21 increasingly personal and embarrassing questions to receive a cash prize at the end, possibly of half a million dollars. The contestant is administered a polygraph test 
before the show so the truthfulness of the answers are known to those behind the scenes. The contestants have their family members sitting on the stage with them uh, while they answer their questions. The episode that caused the most controversy was one which featured a woman called Lauren Cleary. In the show, in front of her devastated husband, she admitted to still being in love with an old boyfriend. She admitted to having stolen from her place of work. And, well, why don't you look at it for yourself? Question 16. Since you've been married, have you ever had sexual relations with someone other than your husband? I wish the button was still there. Yeah, telling me. I'm gonna have to say yes. That answer is true. Okay, Lauren. Two more gets you $200,000, but be careful. One mistake, you lose it all. Are you feeling like you should go for it now? Yeah. Okay. Question 17. Do you think you're a good person? Honestly, I think I am a good person. So your answer is? Yes. That answer is? It's true. It's true. False. So she admitted to theft. She lost her job after the show. She admitted to being in love with a previous boyfriend who actually, early on in the show, they actually bring him out onto the platform. It's real voyeurism, isn't it? And then she admits to um, infidelity there. And then she gets the next question wrong and loses all the money. Uh, do you think you're a good person? And she says yes, and obviously... They say no. Now, friends, when we... She became the America's most hated woman, by the way, um, for a short period of time after that. When we say, I am a good person, I reckon if we went into Akerstadt Mall after the service and said to people, we're doing a survey for our local church, do you think you're a good person? How many people out of 10 do you think would say yes? 11. Everybody would think that they're a good person, wouldn't they? Um, when we say, I am a good person, we think in terms of vertical steps. You've got Mother Teresa up here, and you've got Hitler down there. And we are somewhere in between, hopefully nearer the top than the bottom. That's how we think. But I want to suggest to you this morning, actually, there are two real problems with the statement, I am a good person. 
the first problem is how do we decide what is good? Or to put it slightly differently, who decides what is good? So the suicide bomber who walks into a tourist resort and blows himself up and a number of innocent people believes that he is good. In fact, so good that he will go instantly to heaven. Who's to say he's wrong? Is the good thing whatever produces the most good for the greatest number of people? Should we democratically decide uh, what is good and impose that decision on all people? But what about the minorities who may disagree and get penalized for that? Do, if we decide democratically what is good and bad, what real motivation is there for me to be good? For example, if the big group, if the majority decides that we ought to pay taxes and I disagree, but I obey because I don't want to go to jail, is it because I'm good or is it because I'm trying to, actually I'm self-interested and trying to avoid jail? Can I really claim to be a good person? So how do we decide what is good? Who decides what is good? There's a second problem with the statement, I'm a good person, and that is how good is good enough? How good is good enough for God? When we think of ourselves as good people, normally we mean we are relatively good. Do we not? That is, we normally take the view that I'm closer to the top of the stairs than to the bottom, and in comparison to others, I am good. And if you're closer to the bottom and you know that, you've always got Lauren Cleary to point at to make you feel better about yourself, haven't you? In comparison to others, I am good. The problem with that, of course, is that you can always find somebody worse than yourself who makes you feel better about yourself. If I'm comparing myself to a murderer or to a prostitute or to a drug dealer, then I am good. And I take it that most of you are too. The trouble comes when I compare myself up, when I compare myself to God. For God is not relatively good. God is absolutely good. There is nothing in him that is not good. His thoughts and his actions and his speech are all absolutely and perfectly good. He, in fact, is the standard of goodness. You don't have God and the standard of goodness, and God is examined under that standard. God is the standard of goodness, against which all of us must be measured. And so, when I compare myself to God, well, I'm not so sure that I am good. I feel the deficit in my own morality, in how I've chosen to think and act and speak now, um, Stella read for us a lovely and a well-known story of the rich ruler who comes to speak to Jesus. And I want us to see three things from that story this morning. The first thing is, according to Jesus, only God is good. Uh, verse 22 tells us that the man had great wealth. Uh, he was a good man. He was a moral man. He's a man who could say, I've kept the Ten Commandments. He was a Jewish man and therefore a religious man. So here is a religious, moral, upright, wealthy, successful citizen. And he enjoys, no doubt, all of the power that goes with wealth, which makes verse 17 actually really striking because in verse 17 in public, he runs to Jesus 
and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus, which for an upstanding, highly regarded individual in a shame and honor culture would have been a very humiliating thing to do in public. Nobody runs and nobody kneels in public, and yet he does it. There is an urgency about this man. He desperately wants to find something else out because there is something that his money has not bought him. What can make a rich man desperate? He knows that his money can't buy God. He knows that his money can't buy him assurance of salvation. Assurance of acceptance with God. He knows that his money has not delivered to him a seat in heaven. And so he recognizes that Jesus has the answer. And he comes to Jesus in verse 17, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What an important question. This man... uh, has not been blinded by wealth. He knows that there is more to this life than what we can see and touch and spend. He knows that there is life after death, and he wants to know how to secure that for himself. He's a thoughtful man. And Jesus answers quite shockingly in verse 18 by saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Imagine saying that in Akerstadt Mall. Do you think you're a good person? Yes. Do you know that only God is good? That would have been a shock. But what a vital point it is. Most people think in our world today that if you are a good person, God will accept you. Jesus thinks there are no good people, only God. Of course, that doesn't mean that we aren't capable of doing good things. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be. It means that our decency, our morality, our uprightness, our law-keeping is not good enough for God. In fact, when I think that God should settle for my levels of morality and decency, and perhaps even be grateful to have someone like me on his team, I reveal actually my rebellion, for I am calling the shots. And I am telling God what ought to be acceptable to him, namely me. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 3, in the least believed verses in the Bible, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I wonder if you think that those verses apply to you. Jesus does. Well, Paul is getting that from Jesus. Secondly, will you notice that this man, like us, we all have blind spots when it comes to God and morality. Um, The rich man has not understood the magnitude or the depth of his need, of his sin. And there's a delicious irony in the story. The man seeking eternal life, Jesus responds by saying, have you kept the Ten Commandments? 
the man says, yes, I've kept all of them, in verse 20. And then Jesus puts his finger on the man's one blind spot. In verse 21, look at what he says. One thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, we need to be careful here, friends, because uh, we need to not make that um, a statement that is applicable across the board to everybody. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to give up all of your wealth and sell everything that you have. That is not a, a statement that is applicable to every Christian. It's for this man in this moment with his mindset because Jesus is revealing something to him that is very ironic. Jesus is showing him that in actual fact, for all of his pride, for having kept the Ten Commandments, he's breaking the first commandment. Remember the first commandment, to have no other gods besides me? This man has got another god. His god is money. He will turn away from Jesus sad, we are told, because he has something in Jesus' place. Money. He's unwilling to pay the price of discipleship. A moral man, a thoughtful man, a decent and an upright man who does lots of good things, but he is blind to the fact that in his case he loves money more than God, and in that he is living a life of denial of God. You know, Jesus uh, met another very wealthy man once called Zacchaeus. You might know the story. He was a short man. He had to climb a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus calls him down from the tree and goes to have dinner with him, and he was a wealthy man. He was, he was a wealthy extortionist. He wasn't like this man. He wasn't a good man, and he knew it. Jesus, do you know, never tells him to sell everything that he's got to follow him. And so we need to be careful about absolutizing that principle. Now, in this context, Jesus' point is that nothing must be in God's place in your life. If you love money more than Jesus, then you've chosen a different God. Now, for the followers of Jesus, money is just money, not God. And it is not to be worshipped. It's interesting that Jesus should put his finger on this uh, nerve in the man, because really it puts his finger on a nerve in our own culture today. And we would do well to heed the warning of verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so we should take heed this morning. Uh, I heard last week that if, you, if your household income is 23,000 rand or more every month, that you are part of the top 5% of our country. Is it 5% or 1%? I can't remember. But anyway, you are rich. How hard it is for rich people to get into heaven, says Jesus. Because money is a powerful God. But you know, he's not the only one with a blind spot. Uh, Peter also has a blind spot. We love Peter, don't we? Because he opens his mouth to change feet most of the time. He says in verse 28, 
We've left everything to follow you. You know, that rich guy, he doesn't want to leave his wealth to follow you, but we have left everything to follow you. See, if the rich man thinks that he can earn heaven by what he has done, the Ten Commandments, Peter thinks that he can earn heaven by what he has given up for Jesus. He thinks that God is in his debt because unlike the rich man, he's given everything up to follow Jesus. The rich man tried his best to obey God and hoped that God would accept him because of his moral efforts. Peter gave up everything and hoped that God would accept him because of what he had given up. Can you see that both men are trusting in something that they have done in order to be acceptable to God? They're relying on their own efforts and they feel entitled to God's acceptance because of their behavior and because of what they've done. Many people are just like that. They go to church, they engage in religion, they live moral lives, and because they're respectable, they feel that God is obliged to accept them. If material wealth is not an indication that you are accepted by God, if law-keeping, the Ten Commandments, is not an indication that you are accepted by God, then please know that self-sacrifice doesn't save you either. And so how are we saved? Who can be saved? And so my final heading is how to be saved. The answer to the rich ruler's question is actually embedded in the question itself, like a cryptic crossword. Did you remember his question? Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When you think about it, it's actually a very strange question for what must one do to inherit anything? The answer is nothing. You can't do anything to inherit something. Maybe I should just change the question slightly to what needs to take place in order for me to inherit? Well, then it becomes a bit clearer, doesn't it? The answer is somebody needs to die for me to inherit. See, the man hasn't understood that everything necessary for us to be saved has actually taken place. God has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven and to be accepted and to be justified and to inherit eternal life because Jesus died. Someone has died. The one who was wealthy beyond imagining, who gave it all up. The one who was moral, truly and absolutely moral, unlike us, has given it all up on the cross so that you and I can be made acceptable and made righteous by his sacrifice of his life. We can't achieve our own salvation. That's what the man wants to do. That's what Peter thinks that he can do. We can only receive our justification, our salvation. You can't achieve it. You can only receive it. Just like you can't achieve an inheritance, you can only receive an inheritance. It's all God, 4 verse 27, with man it is impossible. It took the death of a good man 
the only absolutely good man, Jesus, to bring us forgiveness and to lead us to God. Can you see that acceptance by God really has nothing to do with whether you are closer to Mother Teresa or Hitler? The only way that God accepts us is when we have accepted Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. I want you to think about something else this morning before I close. The view that says that God should accept the good people is actually a view that has no grace in it whatsoever. For what about those who are moral failures? What about Lauren Cleary? What about the broken, the dirty, the shamed, the unclean, the bad? What about those people? If God only accepts good people, what hope is there for them? And if we're honest, what hope is there for us? No, I'm so grateful that God does not operate like that. That God's grace is deeper than my worst failure and sin. See, if like the rich man you are self-justified, like Peter, then you have no need of Jesus. And actually, you know, Jesus has nothing for you. For self-salvation has no place with Jesus. It's so striking that it is possible to be a good and a religious and a moral person and to miss Jesus. There's a lovely little detail in the story, which I I came back to over and over again this week as I was reading it. Did you notice verse 21? Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that lovely? Here is a man who's so close. He's on his knees, remember, in front of Jesus. Jesus loves him. He's so close. And yet he goes away sad. You know, friends, Jesus looks at you today. I wish I could say this to Lauren Cleary. Jesus looks at you today and he loves you. He says, put all of your weight on me. Give me your moral failings, your uncleanness, your shame. Give it to me. I've got it. I love you. Trust in me and in my death in order to inherit eternal life. This man who has done all the right things his whole life, who goes to the right person, who even takes the right posture on his knees in front of the great Son of God, he even gets the right title to honor Jesus, good teacher, goes away sad. Don't let that be you this morning. What the Bible is teaching us today is that it is possible to miss God because you're relying on your own track record. And I want to say to you this morning that the great news of the Christian message is your track record notwithstanding, Jesus loves you and he wants to give you eternal life. Will you trust in him? and put your full weight on him. I've written a little prayer in response that might be your prayer this morning. It says, Dear God, I accept that I'm not good enough for you. 
Thank you for Jesus' death in my place. I place my trust in him and him alone. Please forgive me. Please accept me and help me to live for you. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. Why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes, and I'm going to say that prayer line by line. And perhaps you want to make it your own in the privacy of your own heart. Dear God, I accept that I am not good enough for you. Thank you for Jesus' death in my place. I place my trust in him and him alone. Please forgive me. Please accept me and help me to live for you. Amen.